So a couple of weeks ago, I gave a lesson on uh, Joel 2, as it is uh, described in Luke Acts and kind of comes to fulfillment throughout Luke Acts. And in that, one of the main ideas of Joel 2 is the Holy Spirit falling upon the people of God. And, and after that question, or after that sermon, I was asked a question, basically, about the Holy Spirit. Uh, if I would go into any more depth about uh, what does the Holy Spirit you know, do? Like, what, what does that mean to have the Holy Spirit? And uh, so I said I would give a lesson on a Sunday night about that topic, and I stand before you fully prepared to disappoint you with this lesson. Uh, I have no doubt in my mind, because one of the things that the more that I study the Spirit, the less comfortable I feel narrowly defining what the Holy Spirit will and will not do, can and cannot do. Um, the Holy Spirit, I believe, is a person. And as such, the Holy Spirit's going to act in ways that, you know, in the same way that I don't know what you're going to do next week, I don't think I always know what the Holy Spirit's going to do next week. Um, and, and so what I've entitled this is A Theology of Ambiguity. The Spirit is real, and we're supposed to trust the Spirit and be filled with hope because of the Spirit and rely upon the Spirit. But having said that, we're going to look through the Bible, and we're going to, uh, to note the fact that it's very difficult to give any sort of precise three-point sermon where you nail down everything that the Spirit's about. Uh, so, so that's kind of what we're going to start with. We're going to look at the Old Testament, we're going to look at the New Testament, and we're just going to look at snapshots of different moments that the Spirit appears and does things. And then we're going to try to find if there's anything that, that those all have in common, uh, if there's any consistency in here at the Spirit, and uh, then we'll, we'll talk about some things that maybe are beneficial to remember because of that. So, let's begin. A theology of ambiguity. The Spirit's ambiguity. I think it appears uh, a lot in the, in, the, in the Bible, but here's a passage. This is from Exodus chapter 31. If you were to ask me, what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, here's a passage where they're about to construct the tabernacle. And here's something that the Holy Spirit does. I have filled him with wisdom and the Spirit of God, uh, or sorry, I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and in bronze, for the cutting of stones and for setting in the carving of wood, that he may work all kinds of craftsmanship. All right, so that's someone who's designing the tabernacle, and he's going to be working with all kinds of metals and woods and all that stuff. And you know what the Holy Spirit does? Helps him. Uh, what exactly does that look like? Like, is he's, is he's bringing the hammer down? Is the Holy Spirit guiding it so that it hits the nail exactly where it's supposed to? Maybe. Uh, I don't know exactly, but I know the Holy Spirit's uh, supposed to be helping the, the craftsmen as they are working on and building the tabernacle. So what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, number one, he helps you work with wood and metals. Uh, you might not have known that that was what the Holy Spirit did, but that's one. Uh, I'll give you another one. This is from Ezekiel chapter 8 and verse 3. The Spirit lifted me up in, uh, between earth and heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem. All right, so Ezekiel is written by an exile in Babylon. Ezekiel is a prophet, but he's been taken along with a big group of other Israelites to go live in Babylon as an exile. And yet, beginning in chapter 8, he gets this uh, vision where he's able to see what's going on in Jerusalem. How can he see what's going on at the temple in Jerusalem? It's actually a terrible scene. He's able to look inside the temple, and he sees that there's idols in there, and he looks outside, he sees people worshiping the sun, and he sees all these different things taking place in Jerusalem, and he's realizing, oh, uh, this, this exile might last a while because there's no repentance in Jerusalem. They're going to get punished even more. But as this is happening, how is he able to, from Babylon, be able to see what's happening in Jerusalem? 
Well, apparently the spirit had a role in transportation of, uh, of what he, his awareness is. And then you continue reading, you get to uh, Ezekiel chapter 11, and it says, And the spirit lifted me up and brought me um, in a vision by the spirit of God to the exiles in Chaldea. So he's able to take, get this vision to, to go back home. But uh, he's able to, through this, in some way, miraculously, through the spirit, see what's taking place in other uh, time and place. Um, the spirit... Helps you can beat up lions if you get attacked. Uh, a young lion came roaring towards him. That is Samson. Uh, the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily so that he tore him as one tears a young goat, uh, though he had nothing in his hand. By the way, I've never just torn a young goat, but that's what he likens him tearing this lion to. But uh, here you have someone who is able to be incredibly strong because of the Holy Spirit. This happens again with Samson. Uh, the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily so that the ropes were on his ar- that were on his arms were as flax that is burned with fire. Uh, so he's able to, they tied him up with these strong ropes and he could just rip right through them. And what gave him the strength to do that? Well, apparently it was the Holy Spirit. Um, the Spirit of God came upon him also so that he went along prophesying continually. That's from 1 Samuel 19. That's about King Saul. And King Saul, people after seeing this said, is King Saul numbered among the prophets? Like there were these bands of, of prophets uh, and King Saul seemed to be among them. What gave him the ability to, to speak like the prophets and to go, well, the Holy Spirit was able to do that. Um, Micah, uh, I think, uh, makes reference to the same type of idea of the Spirit filling him with the ability to prophesy. He says, I'm filled with power with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and courage to declare to Jacob the transgression, his transgressions and to Israel his sin. So prophets were able to receive their message and have boldness to speak truth of God from the Holy Spirit. And by the way, uh, prophets weren't always like miraculously predicting the future in, or, or some distant future. A lot of times they were just giving an accurate divine interpretation of what's going on in the world around them right now. And a lot of times that was, that was harsh, but the authority behind that interpretation of the world around them seems to rely in the giving of the Holy Spirit. Um, Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6. There's a really awesome passage in Zechariah 4, 6. It says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. The context of that passage is Zechariah is one of the leaders, uh, or sorry, not Zechariah, um, Zerubbabel is one of the leaders in Israel on the return home from uh, exile. And one of the things that he's supposed to do is to lead them in the rebuilding of the temple. So we talked about the building of the tabernacle earlier, how the spirit helped the craftsmen. Well, now he's supposed to rebuild the temple that was destroyed by Babylon. And you look around and they don't actually have a tremendous amount of gold and silver. It's not a very wealthy time in the history of Israel. They've just returned back home and he doesn't have a lot of might and he doesn't have a lot of power. And I think he's very concerned about how he's going to get this done. And he receives this really encouraging vision of uh, this golden lamp that's continually filled by these uh, olive trees that are putting the oil into it. So it's just a continually lit lamp. And the idea of it is God saying that, uh, I'm going to be with you. You are my chosen one. And uh, don't worry. You, you started the building of the temple, and by your hand it will be completed. And it won't be by your might, and it won't be by your power, but it will be by my spirit. Again, I, what exactly does that mean? Uh, does the spirit help them physically build, like it helped Samson physically tear apart a lion? Uh, we're not told. We're not really given detail. But we're told if he's going to finish that temple, it's going to happen because of the Spirit's power. Um, 
then Haggai chapter 2 and verse 6, very, it's the same time period and a very similar message about rebuilding of the temple. And a lot of the people were very discouraged when they saw that the temple didn't look quite as glorious as the temple under Solomon. I mean, Solomon, that was like the height of the Israelite monarchy and their wealth and their expansion of their kingdom. Uh, by this time, they are exiles who are wandering back home to a place that's been destroyed. And uh, they're going to try to rebuild, but it's not a, an impressive time in their history. And what God tells them is the latter glory of this temple will be greater even than the former glory. And the encouragement is that his spirit is abiding in their midst, so they do not need to fear. So, we've looked at all of these uh, passages, and this is just, again, just brief snapshots. And we've seen a lot of different things. We've seen the Holy Spirit helping people beat up lions. We've seen the Holy Spirit helping people get untied from ropes. We've seen the Holy Spirit helping people build. We've seen the Holy Spirit giving prophets utterance. We've seen the Holy Spirit giving people courage to prophesy. We've seen the Holy Spirit uh, act and you know, help them rebuild the temple after it was destroyed. So kind of looking uh, at uh, why it is that I would call this a, a, a theology of ambiguity, uh, it seems that the working of the Spirit is rather unpredictable. Um, you don't really know what the Holy Spirit's going to do. I don't know that before Samson beat up that lion, he could have heard a sermon saying that the Holy Spirit will do these four things, one of which includes beating up a lion. Uh, you know, there, there are... There seems to be the Holy Spirit is going to do what the Holy Spirit's going to do. Um, in John chapter 3, Jesus uses an illustration of the Holy Spirit uh, being like wind. By the way, that's a really fitting illustration because the word wind and the word spirit are the same word uh, in, in the original languages. And so uh, the idea of the wind is it's not something that you can really predict very well, and it's not something that you can control, certainly, but it's something that you, you see the effects of it. And perhaps that's a healthy attitude to have towards the Spirit. Uh, John 3 is talking about the person who's been born of the Spirit or, or born of, uh, of God. And basically that person is someone who, uh, just like the wind, you don't know what the Spirit's going to do in their life. You don't know how it's going to work out. And so it's best, you know, Nicodemus, who Jesus is talking to, is probably rather used to being in control of things in his life. And perhaps it's a, it's a healthy reminder that the person who's born of the Spirit— you're losing some control there. And you don't always know what that's going to lead to. And so enjoy the ride, but don't always try to control the ride. Um, one of the reasons also that, uh, you know, I've mentioned calling this a, a theology of ambiguity, and I said, you know, it's gonna be disappointed if you're looking for specifics, is because I think it's important, especially with things that are unpredictable. And when you're reading the Bible or when you're doing anything, really, it's important to recognize there are categories that you can uh, sort information in. And what I mean is there are some things that I would say, this is in the category of what I know, or at least what I think that I know. Uh, but this is in the category of what I know, but I also have the category of what I think. And there are a lot of things that I think that I, I'm pretty confident I can't put them in the category of I know for certain. That doesn't mean I don't believe them, and that doesn't mean that I don't think them. But it means I recognize that there, while there are reasons I think this, there's room for growth in my knowledge and understanding here. Uh, there's room for more certainty than, than I currently have. And I, there are a lot of things like that in my life. You know, I can, I, I can tell my wife, I don't think this is in that drawer. And she can say, it is in that drawer. And I am not about 
to say, no, it's not in that drawer, because you, what I've learned over, over my marriage uh, is that I am often wrong. I am wrong an awful lot. Even the things that I really think that I'm right, I turn out to be wrong, and it's very frustrating. And so when you're approaching the Bible, recognize that it's possible you could be wrong, and it's possible I could be wrong. Uh, r- like, that happens. I've been wrong before. Uh, you know, it, it happens in other, every other area of my life. I'd be shocked if it never happens when I'm reading the Bible. Uh, and so that's not to say doubt everything that you believe. That's not to say you can't have any confidence. But it's to say recognize that there are things you think and things you believe, and those matter, and you don't have to give those up. And you should have reasons for those things that you should be able to articulate. But at the same time, you can always proceed with humility and with openness. You can always proceed knowing that perhaps there's more you can learn about this. Or perhaps your views will alter over time. I'd say when it comes to the Holy Spirit, there are a lot of things that I think, but there aren't nearly as many things that I know. Um, So I'll say there are things that I think uh, when it comes to what the Spirit will and won't do today. Uh, There are things that, that... Um, If someone told me, the Spirit did this in my life, I might think, oh, okay, and I might doubt what they're telling me. I might not actually believe it. Uh, That that happens regularly. People will say things, and I think, I'm not sure about that. But at the same time, I'm probably not going to say that for certain did not happen, and the Spirit had nothing to do with that. Do you know why? Because there are things that I think, and there are things that I know, and I'm I'm not usually going to make that step. Um, And so there are things that I believe about the Holy Spirit and think about the Holy Spirit, and there are things that I doubt are actually going to happen. I'll say a couple of things that I don't think are going to happen right now. Um, 1 Corinthians 13 mentions things like uh, tongue speaking, prophecy, and knowledge, which I think would be like a miraculous type of knowledge. And it mentions these three things in the context of gifts of God that will not endure. There are some gifts of God that endure. The greatest gifts of God, faith, hope, and love, those are going to endure, and love seems to be the one that will endure forever and ever and ever. There are a whole bunch of other gifts that are mentioned earlier in chapter 12 that he doesn't say anything about their endurance. He just, he, he just, he just mentions them as existing. But he does mention three that he says will not endure, and those are um, tongue speaking and prophecy and miraculous knowledge. He says the, those will endure basically until the perfect comes or until the complete comes. And I have what I think that complete or that perfect is, but I will say I know there are a number of interpretations about that, And I'm not confident enough in mine to say with certainty uh, what God will and will not do. Uh, So I'll say what I think and I'll say what I've experienced and what I've seen other people experience. And I'll sometimes have my doubts with things that people tell me. But whenever I'm preaching, I try to be very cautious not to say with certainty things that I only think. And uh, and so when it comes to the Holy Spirit, uh, I don't think there's tongue speaking today. And I don't think that there is new prophecy today. Certainly, and I think this is something you can put into the the I know category. If someone comes to you and says, the Holy Spirit revealed to me that I could commit adultery on this instance, but just no no one else can. I think you can say, no, I know that's not right. Uh, If someone is coming with this new idea that actually contradicts scripture, I think you can pretty well put that into the category of, I know that didn't happen. Um, But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, again, I would say, 
I proceed with caution. I have things that I think and that I believe. I try to be open. I try to be humble with what I believe. Um, but I also recognize there's going to be a diversity of beliefs about these things. And uh, proceed with humility. Believe as best you can, but be cautious what you say absolutely no to and absolutely yes to. Um, if I had to summarize what the Holy Spirit does, I would say the Spirit does whatever God wills the Spirit to do whenever it's needed. And that's one of the reasons I think that it's unpredictable. Um, I don't know that there is a three-point outline of these are the three things the sermon does. I think the Spirit is free to do whatever the will of God is in a given time or place or situation. And so because of that, what the Spirit does is much more in God's mind than it is mine. I mean, the, the Spirit, I, I like the way that, uh, <laughs> that 1 Corinthians chapter 2 describes it. Paul writes, no one knows the, the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man that is in him. What that means is basically, I don't know your thoughts right now. Uh, you know, I, I like to hope you're having positive thoughts about this lesson or something. Uh, we'll, we'll see. But, uh, but I don't know your thoughts right now, but you know your thoughts. The spirit that's within you knows your thoughts. And what Paul says is no one knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of, his man, of, of a man that is in him. Likewise, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God that's within him. But God has given to us his spirit. Uh, and so what he's saying, I believe, is that there are things in the mind of God that we do not have access to. But God actually did reveal his spirit, and I think the us he's talking about there is specifically the apostles, and he's saying God has revealed certain things to us, and those things have been written down, and so when we're reading the Bible, we can actually read some of the very thoughts of God, which is a pretty incredible thing to consider. But what you have right there is the spirit knows all of God's thoughts, but I actually don't know all of God's thoughts. Um, and so because of that, in a given time or circumstance, God might have a thought, and he might act upon it through the Holy Spirit. And I should, like the wind, see what happens and say, wow, that's amazing. Uh, again, I'm always going to have a difficult time detailing precisely what the Spirit did versus what the Spirit did not do versus what would have happened had the Spirit not been there versus what, you know, in the same way that if someone's building the tabernacle and it says the Spirit of God gave them wisdom to build and to cut well and to do all that stuff, what would the tabernacle have looked like had the Spirit not done that? I have no idea. You know, I, I, I know the Spirit was there because the Bible says he was there and helping. Would the guy have been able to, to hit the hammer, <laughs> with the nail with the hammer without the Spirit? Probably. Would it have been the exact same? I'm guessing not, but I don't know. The Spirit was working, but I can't define exactly what he was doing. And the same, I would say, is true in the ministries of the church and in the work that we do and in our personal lives. I believe the Holy Spirit is alive and active and, and, and does an awful lot for us, but I can't detail what it's doing or what he is doing versus what he is not doing versus what it would look like had he not been involved versus what it would look like knowing that he was involved. I think you be open. You see what happens. You always be willing to praise God and give thanks to him. And you, you don't always need an answer. Ambiguity is one of those things that gives us a lot of discomfort because we want to nail everything down. And I'm just saying, maybe we can't nail everything down here. And maybe that's okay. Maybe it's fine to approach this without having all of our questions answered. Maybe that would lead us to not be so condemning or judgmental of other people who, who might think differently. And maybe also it would lead us to be more open to the possibility of what God can do. 
I don't know what God's going to do, and I don't know exactly how it's going to look, but I believe he acts, and I believe he's alive, and I believe he's powerful, and I believe he's real, and I believe he is, is still working. And so I'm not about to say what he cannot do with certainty or what he will do. I'm like the wind, ready to see where it goes and happy to see where it goes. Um, Having said all of that, though, there are a few things as we looked through even that hodgepodge list of snapshots from the Old Testament, there were a few consistencies in there. Um, One of those is that wherever you see the Holy Spirit coming seems to be a blessing upon those people. Um, In every one of those instances, it was God's blessing to those people. God's favor was upon them when he gave them his Holy Spirit. Um, Everything we saw was a blessing to God's people. Also, the Spirit is a sign of God's presence among his people. The Spirit is God's Spirit. I mean, He is the breath of God and the Spirit of God. So where you see the Holy Spirit, you see the very presence of God. And to me, that's a very comforting thought, to know that God is with us throughout our lives, to know that God is with His people, that God indwells our community. God's presence is here. Again, if you start asking me, exactly what does that mean that an, an omnipresent God is present? Well, obviously he's present, I guess you could say. But in the same way, there, there is this idea of sometimes God seems more present in some places than other places, and how you mathematically cipher through all of that, I have no idea. But I'm going to trust that God's presence is here, and I'm going to trust that that gives me great hope, that God's presence is with us in a unique and special way, and in a way that is, uh, that is real, and in a way that is comforting. Um, we see that, uh, you know, just even along those lines, God's uh, spirit is a sign of his presence. Joseph in uh, Genesis 41, 38 is described as a man uh, in whom the spirit of God is. And when you see that, Joseph, I mean, you look at his life, he gets thrown into a pit by his brothers. He gets sold into slavery. He gets thrown in jail unjustly. And in each of those instances, Even when all the world is against him, God's presence and favor is there, and he's able to excel, and he's able to overcome. That's what it is. God didn't abandon him in that pit, and God didn't abandon him in Potiphar's house, and God didn't abandon him when he was in the, the prison unjustly. And so we see in each of these instances, the spirit is a spirit, is a sign of the blessing of God upon his people. Uh, The Spirit also is life-giving in virtually every instance that we see the Holy Spirit. Um, The Holy Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters at the very beginning of creation. I mean, the Holy Spirit doesn't enter the story of the Bible later. It's right there in verse 2. You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and there was darkness over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. When God is about to enact creation and give life, The Holy Spirit is there and the Holy Spirit is present. Um, An expression that's a really interesting one. We just sang about it, which I did not know that song, but it it very much relied upon this expression. Um, It says, I'm bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life. Um, I mentioned earlier that the word uh, wind and the word spirit in Greek are going to be the same word. Well, the word breath in the word uh, spirit are also often the same word. This is, this is Hebrew, uh, and in Hebrew, that's the word ruach, and uh, it's kind of a fun word to say because you get to do that little thing at the back of your throat, but, uh, but what you have right here is the Holy Spirit is, is described as the, uh, as the ruach of God, but notice life itself is described as, as 
the breath of life, the spirit of life that we have. And so we have a spirit of life. Guess what? God has a spirit of life, and it's the Holy Spirit, and it is life-giving. Um, there's a really powerful chapter in Ezekiel 37 where there's this valley of dead, dry bones. It represents Israel's current state in exile. Uh, it, exile is, is death. You know, even, you even see it in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden... They were banished from the garden because of their sin. And they were told that in the day you eat, you will surely die. I mean, banishment from life is ultimately death. It is what leads to death. When they were banished from the, the promised land that God had promised to Abraham and had given to the people, and they were there for hundreds of years, and then they are exiled and banished from it, that's the death of a nation. And it would be very easy to lose hope in your walk with God when you see the death of your nation and the death of, of God's covenant and the death of his people. But Ezekiel 37 says, take a look at that valley of dry, dry bones and prophesy to it. And as he does so, God says, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life. You know what happens to those dry bones? They start to rattle and they start to shake and they start to stand and they start to be filled with, with vessels and with life and with blood and with skin. And that valley comes to life. It's this beautiful picture of resurrection is what it is. And it's the resurrection of, of a nation. It's the resurrection of Israel after exile that God still has plans for them and life for them. But notice the, the source of that life for God's people is his Holy Spirit. Um, it's a spirit of community. What I mean is the Holy Spirit... While it does rest upon individuals, and we will see that, the Holy Spirit is also uh, a sign of God's presence among a community or a group. Um, this passage is from Isaiah 42. It says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Now, if you read that, it sounds a whole like he's talking about a person, uh, his servant, and he talks about him as, as a him. And there's a sense in which I think he is. But there's also a sense in which, as you read Isaiah, he identifies the servant a number of times. Uh, Isaiah 44, 21 says, Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. Uh, the servant is often spoken of in Isaiah. There's this very, you know, the, the, the servant who eventually becomes the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is often spoken of as Israel itself. I mean, regularly, that's how, that's how the servant is described. But then there are also these passages that seem to speak of the servant as one who acts on behalf of Israel. And the servant isn't identified in, in those passages, but other than to say that the servant is Israel. Uh, but then there are these clues that the servant is not just Israel, but is also someone who acts on Israel's behalf. And we always, and I think appropriately, apply that idea of the servant to Jesus, and there's a couple of reasons why, but one of them I think is the idea that Jesus, as an Israelite, acts on behalf of Israel to fulfill the purpose and the mission of Israel. So it's like, you know, if you go, someone goes to the Olympics and they win the gold medal in the 100-meter dash or something like that, and uh, who won that? Well, you could say this person won that, or you could say the, the, the nation or the, the country that they represent. They won the gold, you know. America won the gold. Why? Because of our, our runner. He ran the gold. Or who made it to the moon first? We say, well, the USA did, you know, right? Well, even though I wasn't there, you weren't there, but, but an American was there, and he did it on behalf of the, of the empire, or the, of, the, of the country. I think with the servant, you have this destiny for Israel that Israel tends to fail to live up to. 
And so a faithful Israelite fulfills it for them. That's why we, we appropriately apply these servant passages to Jesus. But all of that is to say, the idea here seems to be that God is filling his servant with his spirit, and the servant is supposed to bring justice to the nations, and that's a call for all of Israel. That's a call for Israel to be a light to the nations. Remember when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world? He's fulfilling the purpose of Israel, which was to be a light to the world, a light to the nations. Uh, and so Jesus, as the servant, is fulfilling the role of the servant. But this passage right here is saying that God's going to fill Israel with his spirit. And, uh, and that is something that, uh, that I think is important to notice, that the spirit is often shared communally. The Spirit is also given as a warning against rebellion, and this happens quite a bit. Uh, these passages from Isaiah are, are interesting. Isaiah 63, 11 and 12 says, Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? The Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. Okay, so God puts his Spirit in the midst of the people and it brings rest. But do you know what it says right before that? But they have rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. By the way, pay attention to that phrase, they grieved his Holy Spirit. It'll pop up again. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy and fought against them. Um, the Holy Spirit is given, but the Holy Spirit is also recognized uh, to upset or to dishonor or to disgrace or defile the Holy Spirit actually can turn out uh, to your own harm. And so when the Holy Spirit is given as God's presence and blessing for a people, responsibility comes with that. And warning uh, is also associated with that not to rebel. Uh, you see it pop up a number of times in the Old Testament. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord was departed from Saul. Or Saul was, was given the, the Spirit, and he could go around, and he was a Saul among the prophets. But Saul also lost that Spirit. Um, David, after his sin with Bathsheba, this is a traditional setting for Psalm 51, is begging God to forgive him. And one of the things he says is, do not cast away your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. By the way, I think those are kind of uh, supposed to be re read as a parallelism. Basically, don't cast me away from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me are, mean the same thing. God's presence is through his Holy Spirit. And when he distances himself from God with his sin with Bathsheba, he recognizes that he's distancing himself from the very presence of God and his Holy Spirit. So he's begging God, don't, don't cast me away, rather forgive me, purge me, cleanse me, wash me, create in me a new heart and a clean heart. Um, and uh, Joel 2 describes a day when God will, and this is a passage that's kind of important for us, God will pour out his spirit on all mankind. Um, but the idea you get up to that point in Joel is that that's not happened. Uh, that's something that, uh, that is a future hope, but especially in Israel, they seem to be lacking that because of their sins and because of the ways that they have turned against God. Now this phrase, um, we have looked at it as it appears in Luke and in Acts, and uh, you can see uh, it's quoted in, in a lot of those um, the key ideas from it kind of continue throughout, and we won't look at that quite right now since we did a whole lesson on it. But uh, one of the things that you see is uh, the promise of God's Holy Spirit being poured out on all mankind is one of the major storylines of Acts. And it shows how the Holy Spirit does fill men and women, and they have visions and they prophesy, and it does uh, come forth with signs and wonders that uh, accompany them throughout Acts, and the salvation and calling on the name of the Lord is common throughout. But if you remember, we kind of broke down some of the consistencies of the Spirit saying that it's a blessing, 
uh, to God's people. The Spirit gives life. It's for the community. Those same things appear in the New Testament when you look at God's presence and God's Holy Spirit. Um, in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, all of those passages have a couple of things in common. Uh, one of them is that they talk about gifts that the church is given, and they all give different lists of gifts. And again, if you're going to talk about what gifts the Holy Spirit gives today, I've seen, I've seen things where like the seven gifts of the Spirit, and it's taken from the book of Romans chapter 12. But I think if, if you're going to do that, you also kind of have to look at Ephesians 4, and you also have to look at 1 Corinthians 12, and what you see is there's a ton of them. And, and I'm not sure that even putting all of those together and making a, a giant combination list of everything the Bible says, one of those two, I'm not sure that that's even what you're supposed to do. I think... Uh, you're, maybe that those lists aren't exhaustive and exclusive. That maybe the Holy Spirit does what God wants the Holy Spirit to do when the Holy Spirit is supposed to do it. Uh, and, and the idea is when there are needs in the church and those needs are met, God can do that through his Holy Spirit. And, and, and so I don't know that there is a limited list of these are the only things that the Holy Spirit ever did, and then you limit it. These are the things he still does today, and these are the things that you can hope for him to do for you. Whenever you start making lists that exclude and that perfectly organize it, I think that's when you start getting into trouble. I think it's better to kind of see what happens. Obey, trust, do the best you can, and see what happens, and give thanks to God for it. Um, the Holy Spirit is a sign that God is present among his people, uh, is still true today, as just as true as it ever was. Uh, you can see that in uh, Ephesians chapter 1. You're told that you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance. It's a beautiful picture of basically like the the, the earnest money that you might, you might put towards a, a house or something like that. It's money that shows, no, this is mine, and I'm going to, I'm going to fulfill the rest of this pledge, and I'm giving this now to, to prove it to you. That's what God has given to us, because we have a relationship with God that's going to, to, even as wonderful as it is now, it's going to be experienced in even greater ways in the future. And the Holy Spirit is the, the seal now that God has given us that says we are his, and we, the Holy Spirit is the earnest money that God has put down saying, and I'm going to win you back to me. I'm going to, to receive you unto myself. Uh, and uh, you see the Holy Spirit is a theology of life in the New Testament. Um, Romans 8, our hope of resurrection is rooted in the Holy Spirit. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that's talking about the Holy Spirit, that, that God who raised Jesus from the dead, if his Holy Spirit is in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So if you have hope of resurrection, that's one thing that the Holy Spirit does. Just like he resurrected that valley of dry bones, there's a day coming when even if you die, you will live again. And the hope of that is through God's Holy Spirit. Um, a spirit of community. The, the Spirit indwells not just individual Christians, but the church as a whole. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 uh, describes, it says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? So when we talk about being a temple of God and the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, we often think of that in terms of our bodies. And there's a reason why. Ephesians, uh, 1 Corinthians 6 talks about that. But this passage that uh, you are a temple of God and the Holy Spirit dwells in you is plural. And he's not talking about our individual bodies. He's talking about the church as a whole. And he says that if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. You remember that passage from Isaiah 63 that said, you have rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit, so he turned against you and became your enemy. 
If you are destroying the church, if you are dividing the church, if you are harming the church, uh, the Holy Spirit loves the church, and the Holy Spirit wants to protect the church, and you might find yourself with an enemy you don't want to have if that happens. So he says, anyone who destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy. And that's what the church is. That's what you are. And so love the church and take care of the church and serve the church. That The church matters to God. Um, also in the New Testament, we see kind of like that passage just was, uh, warnings against rebellion based on the Holy Spirit. Like uh, Ephesians chapter uh, three, 4 and verse 30, Paul actually is using the same language from Isaiah 63 when he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, Paul has read Isaiah also, and he uses that language to say that we can do that same thing today and uh, thus make an enemy that we don't want to have. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, this is talking about uh, basically in Corinth, one of the ways that, uh, that you could worship the pagan goddess of Corinth was through fornication. And there were temple prostitutes who, could, uh, you know, who were a part of that worship. And uh, they're being told, don't go to temple prostitutes anymore. You're a Christian. Your body matters. What you do matters. Your conduct matters. And Paul reminds them of that by saying, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. This one is different than that other passage that talks about you being a temple, because that one was about the whole church. This one's about your body, and saying, like, your, your conduct, you, it matters. Be sexually pure, because the Holy Spirit is in you. And you don't want to join yourself to a prostitute while you have the Holy Spirit of God. That would be a way of defiling and dishonoring the Holy Spirit of God. And so he's warning them to act in a way that is upright and holy and just and moral and pure because of the Holy Spirit. And you wouldn't want to uh, grieve the Holy Spirit in that way. So having said all of that, it's a lot of stuff. And uh, here are the, uh, the points that I think would be beneficial for us to remember as we think about the Holy Spirit. Um, we do not know exactly what the Holy Spirit does, will do, or how he does it, and that's fine. I think we could be content with that. Uh, there are some things that, uh, that we can get some vague understanding of, and we know that it's good. <laughs> How about we just say that? The Holy Spirit is good, and let's be happy about the Holy Spirit. And we can know that the Holy Spirit is with us and is active, but exactly what that looks like, I can't really tell you. Maybe, maybe you can tell me, and that would be very helpful, but I can't tell you uh, with certainty. I have things that I think, but I, I don't have as many things as, as I know. Um, we rejoice in the Holy Spirit and in God's blessed presence in our lives. I do think that the Holy Spirit means that God is with you and that God is a presence in your life, and that you have God's love and God's favor with you each and every day. I believe that we can trust in the Holy Spirit for life, now and forever, meaning you've been given the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is your source of life, eternal life, and resurrection life. And so one of the reasons that you can face even death confidently is because you have the Holy Spirit who will give life to your mortal bodies, just as the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead, so the Spirit of God uh, will be used to raise us as well. The Holy Spirit enables us to accomplish God's will. 
whether it's building a tabernacle or rebuilding the temple or the ministries that we're involved in or the things that we do for God. We don't know exactly how and in what way and what measure he works and what it would look like if he wasn't. I mean, there are going to be questions about that that we don't know, but the Holy Spirit produces fruit in our lives and the Holy Spirit is a source of God's presence to help us accomplish the will of God. We must be careful not to grieve him, but to honor him. Um, I mean, your conduct matters. And so as you are living your life, and if you're being tempted with sin, or you're being tempted to lie, or you're being tempted to, to cheat, or you're being tempted to have sexual relations, or to look at pornography, or there's all these different things you can be tempted to do, remember and recognize that you have the Holy Spirit within you. And the things in which you engage now have a much deeper level of meaning and significance to them. Because you're not alone. And God's presence is with you. And God's Holy Spirit is with you. And I, and I don't think that the Holy Spirit will want to engage in a lot of those things. And just as Paul said, do not throw, cast me away from your presence and do not remove your Holy Spirit from me. I'm, I'm not sure that, uh, that the Holy Spirit will always be around for us if we do things that constantly grieve and defile and dishonor him. Uh, finally, the Holy Spirit is present in our church community. Uh, we as individuals are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but also as a community of believers are a temple of the Holy Spirit that God loves and that God protects and that God cares for. And so be careful how you not only live in your own life, but also how you treat the church. Rejoice to be part of the Spirit-filled community of God, but also treat with love and honor the Spirit-filled community of God. Um, that is my brief, ambiguous discussion of what the Holy Spirit does. Uh, again, we've only scratched the surface. I mean, there, there's a million things you could say, and there's a lot more things you can say, but I hope the idea that we have is to rejoice in the Spirit of God, and in His presence, and His life-giving nature, and His comfort, and in the peace that we have through Him. Um, I won't always be able to define exactly what the Holy Spirit is doing, even in my own life. I don't know. But I know He is, and I'm thankful for that, and I'll give thanks to God for that, and I will pray that that continues, and that's something I think that we can take with us. We don't always have to have all the answers. Uh, the wind is there, and the wind blows, and the wind does stuff. I believe the Holy Spirit does as well. Uh, if there's anyone here who would uh, like the prayers of the church or would like to become a Christian uh, tonight, we pray that you would let that be known, that you would come and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.